All right. <clears throat> Matthew 27. Uh, I kind of reached back into Matthew tw 26 because I think I, got, I have a list up here. Not real large because you know, if you can't read it in the back, sorry, but it's not um, just sort of kind of remind your attention. What I've done is sort of list the vignettes that all go together. And I think Peter is part of the part of the larger list, you know, reaching back into chapter 26, reactions to Jesus as Jesus comes to the place where he gives his life. And, uh, you know, Peter, a betrayer of Jesus, and we know, you know, it's just his bitter weeping is where that part of the story ends in chapter 26. And it is not an accident, I don't believe. I don't think anything is an accident about the way Scripture is put together. It's not, it is a true and faithful record of the facts, but it is more than that. It is put together, it is authored by the Holy Spirit in such a way that we're supposed to think about things as he tells them. I think that's, that, that's part of the explanation why we don't just have one authoritative gospel. We have four different versions, four different perspectives of the gospel. And they, they all serve the, the purpose. They all serve it in various ways. Um, the, the corpus of all four of them together, you know, recording slightly different perspectives and sometimes different events. It's all, it's all purposeful. And, and the fact that Judas comes right after Peter, I think that, you know, we're supposed to think, ah, how do those compare? And we talked last time we were together a couple of weeks ago about true repentance and, and remorse that, and I would contend Judas's remorse might have been, I don't think there's any way to quantify it, but there's no reason textually not to believe that Judas was any less sorry than Peter. He, was just, he may have been, I think the language seems to give some reason to believe that Judas was just as sorry as Peter was. The difference between biblical repentance and simple remorse is not how badly you feel about your sin, but what's, where does it go from there? You know, repentance involves turning to the living and the true God for, for forgiveness Judas may have been just as sorry as Peter, but he had no one to turn to. It's despair. It's um, This is sort of an aside. I'm not taking this position, but I've heard people say regarding the unforgivable sin that what you, know, what, what you really ought to understand the unforgivable sin as is just the sin of despair. You know, coming to a place where there is no hope in any form. And you know, what expresses that? Any, any better than a suicide. You know, Judas goes and hangs himself. You know, he has no hope, zero hope. He cannot look beyond the remorse. He cannot look beyond the shame. Um, he just he attempts to destroy himself. And I say attempts because we know that there is an eternality to us that we cannot destroy. And so, by the way... Anybody who's ever in a dark enough place to be tempted by suicide, it's whatever the answer may be to whatever dilemma you're having, it's not suicide because that's not going to that's not going to end things. That's just going to take it to a different level. So um, Judas is such a tragic figure, and I think it's really supposed to be poignant to compare the two. 
Peter betrays Jesus, goes on to represent him beautifully and courageously for the rest of his life in forgiveness and in triumph. And he still isn't faultless. And Judas despairs and kills himself. And I just just think there's just a a really poignant comparison there. Um, And then we get one of these other characters. We'll get into Pilate a little bit here. But through the chapter, you see Pilate, and there's a mention of his wife, how they react to Jesus. Uh, The Jews cry out, let his blood be on us and on our children. We want him dead. Uh, The soldiers mock him. The thieves in this passage are sort of incidental, mocking him, but it's very, and we know more about the thieves from the other Gospels. We'll get to that. Um, Simon of Cyrene. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and not in this account, but in John, we we know that Nicodemus was a party to the burial of Jesus. Um, Part of the big picture is just read all this and think, these these are all illustrative of of different ways you respond to who is this guy who claims to be the son of God, who claims to hold eternal life in his hand, who claims to be the king of Israel. Uh, remember, this whole thing is about the kingdom. Uh, having a conversation last night about how so often we think of the kingdom simply as sort of synonymous with heaven and eternity. The kingdom of God isn't where we go where we, when we die. It is that, but it is much more than that. The kingdom of God is his reign in every detail of, of all of our lives and, and all of earth's history it's his kingdom, and he's never been more or less king, but his kingdom is unfolding. And Jesus is, um, as he puts himself forth as the Savior of Israel, the Son of God, the King of Israel, and the Lamb of God, is representing that kingdom. He is the king, and we, we've read so much about how you live in that kingdom. Um, so let's look at Pilate. Um, and, uh, again, just editorially sticking with Matthew rather than going in synthesis, we know there's this whole incident where Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Herod sends him back. Um, Herod's very interested and curious about Jesus, but ends up not being impressed, and it ends up being you know, sort of a common bond between Herod and Pilate that they have this trial in common. Uh, I won't get into that. Um, let's just stick with, with the text here in Matthew. Um, but Pilate's a governor, um, governor of, of Judea. Uh, sort of the, the power structure would be that Herod and Pilate would have both very much common authority. Pilate would have been formally over Herod because Herod was an Idumean, which is basically a a later, a, a later in history term for Edomite um, from the line of Esau. Uh, but Herod was also, I think, uh, most records say like one-eighth or one-quarter Jew, depending on who you read. He considered himself sort of an expert in Jewish things. Pilate would have been over him, but they would have been, if you think of like a business relationship where maybe you formally work for someone but you have such authority has been delegated to you that you're really just about on the same plane with them. Something along those lines would have been like the relationship between Pilate 
and Herod. So Pilate's the governor that Rome appoints over the region of Judea. Herod is the, is the king who nominally is under Pilate, but Pilate's really Rome's representative. So the reason Pilate gets so involved is because the Jews want Jesus dead and are determined to have him dead. Why don't they just kill him? I mean, I think we know this. Most of us probably heard it. Yeah. Yeah, they were law-abiding <laughs> citizens. Yeah, they, they weren't allowed. Under Roman law, the, the, the Jews were allowed a certain measure of operational autonomy. That's why there was a council. Um, but they were forbidden by the Rome, by the government of Rome, to take matters of life and death into their hand. They had to defer to the Roman government to do that. So, you know, we're going to abide by the law. We'll just get you to kill him, you know, which comes up in the text. Sometimes you read some of these things as they come up in the text. It's almost humorous. Oh, wow, we can't kill him. You kill him. Um, so here's Pilate with Jesus in front of, in front of him. And let's pick up the reading at verse 11. It says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Um, Just pause, quick comment on the phrase, he answered nothing. You see that repeated in the Gospels. Jesus made no defense. It doesn't mean um, necessarily that there's a conflict. If you read, I believe it's the book of John where it says he answered not a word. It doesn't mean he didn't say a single word. And, you know, the, the way you're to take that is he made no defense. Um, and and, he, and it's, I think if you read the four Gospels, you'll find that that's particularly pointed in the presence of the elders and the, and the Jewish council. He will not make a defense to his accusers. Now, Pilate, there's, there's some in, he's still not defending himself, but there's a little bit of interplay between Jesus and Pilate uh, that's recorded. And we'll see some of that here. But, he's, but that he makes no answer or he is silent is in regard to him making a defense. Jesus does not defend himself. And, you know, this, this becomes a, you know, really central to our understanding of, of our relationship with Jesus. You know, what, you know it, even as we imitate him, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges justly. Oh, that's what, that's the Christian ethic of justice and of defending yourself. You know, you, now, there's a place to defend yourself, don't you know, for the sake of, of truth and the gospel, but for your own selfish sake, commit yourself to him who judges justly. Jesus is living that out. And he's living it out in a way that's going to lead to him giving his life. So he, he, he answered nothing. Verse 13, then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Um, I, just found, I, I found that interesting. I, I kind of got off on that on a tangent on that phrase because I was thinking about Pilate. Um, why would Pilate be so astonished and why would he marvel 
that Jesus did not defend himself. Why would this be so strange? I think, uh, to me, I think, I think it's one of those phrases I've read so many times. Of, well, Jesus, just a, you know, he's, he's uh, bearing this as he ought. He's, he's obedient to his father. Pilate doesn't understand, kind of baffles him. But think about who Pilate is. Pilate's a Roman. Rome has this, the Rome of the time had this very deeply entrenched tradition where they had great respect and honor for those who died nobly. Um, there's a famous poem uh, by, by Horace, uh, the, a Roman poet, uh, slightly bef- a few a few decades before the time of Christ, and uh, and and one of his lines is really well entrenched even in, in a lot of Western literature. It is sweet and proper to die for one's country. Yeah, it, yeah. There's a Latin phrase I think dulce et as dulce et decorum for moria patri. Uh, Sweet and proper, sweet and beautiful to die for one's country. That, that was a, a kind of an ethic that every Roman would, would have been trained and, and encouraged to think about. It is a good thing to go die nobly, especially for your country. So this is, Pilate would have been familiar with that. And he's looking at Jesus and he's thinking, he's, he's astonished. What would be so astonishing about that to someone who's, who's imbued with this ethic of a brave and noble death? I, I could see him being impressed. Why would he be astonished? I think there's a, a couple of things. Right? Yeah, yeah. Pilate sees his innocence. Why don't, why don't you do something? Speak up. But again, this, 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 this ethic of noble death, he would have been familiar with. Yeah, yeah, I think that's one of the big things. He's thinking, yeah, go, go die in battle trying to... I, th- I think Pilate would have respected Jesus had he been the leader of a rebellion. And if Pilate himself had to kill him in battle, oh, brave and noble foe, fighting for his people, for his nation. But I think Pilate's looking at Jesus, number one, um, historically the Romans were incredible historical snobs and they couldn't believe anybody was as civilized as they were. And I think Jesus is... In, in, in the eyes, we know the scene in the garden. We know that this is a heavy, heavy burden for Jesus to die for the sins of the world. But humanly speaking, Jesus is just unflinching. I, I think part of the picture is um, Pilate's going, a Jew can do this? A Jew can be this? This self-sacrificial and uh, what, what, the other part of it is he's he's baffled. What are you? You're dying for nothing. Why are you? Why are you doing this? I don't get it at all. Um. Um. So. So there's this, you know, this sense sense of astonishment, on the part, of Pilate, which which the scripture, makes us, come face to face face with. So. Um, 
By the way, parenthetically, I, I was just reading some, uh, some biographical material of Pilate. There's not much known about him, but something I didn't realize is that, now, Christian tradition is, is a very broad thing, and a lot of it isn't biblical, and I'm not endorsing or not. I just think it, think it was interesting how different the view of some Eastern churches are from what is almost universally understood in the West. In, in Christianity, in the broadest sense, is Pilate, wouldn't you say Pilate is a villain? I mean, kind of always, at, 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 at best, sort of a cowardly villain. I really didn't want to kill this guy, but circumstances pushed me into it. And, you know, universally, and I'm talking about Christianity broadly, kind of sees Pilate as a villain. Um, there's a, in the, uh, the Coptic church and in the Ethiopian church historically, there is a tradition um, of understanding Pilate sympathetically, even to the point of uh, he has been venerated as a saint. Um, he found Jesus to be innocent, and the tradition is he later on uh, became a Christian, a follower of Jesus. He was so impressed by Jesus's comportment and heard of his resurrection, and and he's 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 a very sympathetic character in some Christian traditions. Not endorsing that in the least, um, but I, I just think it's interesting because Pilate, and I think it kind of fits in. He, you know, here's Peter, repentant, Judas, remorseful, Pilate. And by the way, we get into this scene with his wife, which we'll read about in a minute, and that's just a little baffling to me. Um, Pilate just doesn't know what to do. And, and again, I think we're all we're supposed to be reading this and thinking, what do I see of myself reflected in these characters? You know, how, how many people are there that might be favorably impressed by the gospel story, but faced with, well, I've, I've got to act upon this. I have got to follow this person. And, and that that's life-changing. It's consuming to follow Jesus, or at least that's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, maybe I'll think about it next week. Or uh, I've got work to do. I, yeah, that, that's really an impressive story. Maybe there's something to that. Maybe it's true. But, I mean, that, it's, a, it's, a, it's in one way very typical of a human, just a typical human response. Yes, I'm impressed. I'm I like this Jesus guy, but you know, change my life to follow this Jew that there's a claim of him rising from the dead two thousand years ago. I don't know if I'm that impressed. And you just put the question aside, and and to not decide this is something we talk to our kids about um, in in a lot of different contexts, not just not just. The context of following Christ. No decision is a decision. If you decide not to decide, you've decided. You know, so here, here, I think here's Pilate kind of standing as, a, as an example of that. You know, he he knew what the right thing to do was. Now we're not talking about personal salvation in his interaction with Jesus here. We're just talking about doing the right thing. But he he just deferred to his. Well, I got a job to do. I'm just going to do my job. Put all that aside. I'm, I'm not going to face what's going on here. Not my job. Above my pay grade. Um, and that's sort of Pilate, and I, I think that's a very common human response. So go on in the text here. Uh, 
Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you in verse 13? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas, which we know from the other Gospels was um, not only a thief, but a murderer, um, apparently guilty of a murderous type of guerrilla warfare. Uh, and we can get into a whole discussion of what's just war and what can constitutes murder in battle, but he was a, an insurrectionist, apparently, uh, who was guilty of murder. Therefore, in verse 17, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who was called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. All right, so now we get a window into, into Pilate's inner thoughts. He knew that Jesus is innocent of the accusations. They handed him over because of his threat to their establishment. Verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. All right, I'm the Sunday school teacher. I'm supposed to have some comments. I am really quite baffled by, the, by dreams in scripture. It is so clear that God uses them in a revelatory manner, often in a prophetic manner, and yet we all have dreams, and probably 95% or nine, maybe 99.9% .9 of our dreams, as far as we can tell, are just some workings of our subconscious and they have no spiritual significance. Or maybe they do and we don't realize it. And this is strange because this isn't this isn't even this isn't to a Jew this isn't to a prophet this doesn't seem to have prophetic value in terms of uh, a warning to God's people. It's Pilate's wife, the wife of a Roman governor. She has a dream about Jesus being a righteous man. Tell your husband have nothing to do with him. It's it, it again. It's it's just mysterious. How God works, I don't really know what to what to make of this and why Matthew recorded it, except that it's just really interesting and awesome the way God's operating in every mind and conscience. I, I draw that from it, that the greater significance of what we're supposed to learn from that dream. I don't know. Becky, you had some thought? I've told you, you know, when I first read this story as a young Christian, I feel sorry for the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm trying to tell you. I'm trying to warn you. Don't do it. Don't go this direction. Don't follow your your governorish responsibilities take the noble path do the right thing and no 
Right. 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 Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's certainly true. That, that I think as you contemplate the passage, you're supposed to see over and over. Pilate, you know, I didn't write this down. It just popped into my mind. Does anybody remember the verse to him who knows to do right and doeth it not? To him it is sin. I, I have the verse in my mind. I don't have the reference. If anybody wants to help me out on that. If, if a man knows to do right and does not do it, to him it is sin. And by the way, I find that ex- ex- extraordinarily convicting. Uh, I think I'm, if I stand before God, I think what I'm, uh, that I might be begging forgiveness a lot more for what I haven't done than what, for what I have. Um, and what I have is deadly. What I have, the sins I have committed are deadly. <laughs> They're more than enough to condemn anyone. But might we be even more guilty of not doing what we ought? I mean, I don't know, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a sober thought. And Pilate should have gone a different way. He knew what to do, and he just didn't do it because he was too invested in however you want to put it. His identity as a Roman governor, his job, um, Roman governor's got to do what a Roman governor's got to do, I guess. Even if it involves letting an innocent guy get killed. Um, so, yeah, no, he's, he's not an admirable character here. Or, or in, in my view, a sympathetic character, the Ethiopian and Coptic churches notwithstanding. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed, yeah. Exactly. His, my job is to keep Rome in charge here. Yeah, and, he, and, and but here we have the the, and it's supposed to be tension for us all the time. We have God's sovereign hand. Could He have done anything differently? No, except yes. <laughs> you know, could Judas have 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 not betrayed Jesus? Well, no. That was that was foretold and ordained before eternity began. But did someone hold a gun? Uh, uh, some spiritual gun to Judas's head, and make no. Judas chose, and it's clear that, Ju- that Judas is culpable. And you have this ongoing tension in every life of every biblical believer, where you understand that you can't change a thing, and yet the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, and you are commanded to obey. And we're culpable when we don't obey. We're culpable when we don't. Um, and yeah, it's 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 just one way I think of it for my own. I don't know if you find this helpful or not. I think of it as you know, like there's a 
there's the divide between time and eternity. And it looks one way from eternity, and God gives us insight into that by letting us know how fixed his counsels are. All that he, all that he plans to do, he does. And yet I'm on this side of the divide, and, and, and I can see my own responsibility, and I can't see except what God reveals in his word of the fixed nature of things, and every decision that comes to me, I am culpable for. You know, I never get to plead, well, gosh, God, you know, I couldn't help it. You made me, you made me this way. You made me sin. Can't do it. It's not, it's not open to us. That's not allowed. So, yeah, so it is equally true that Pilate couldn't do anything different and that Pilate did wrong. Um, so it's, it's, it's sobering. It's uh, mysterious and awesome and sobering to, to, to just contemplate that. So... We read his wife's comment, verse 20, but the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They cried out, it said, they said, but we find out otherwise they were crying out Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said to him, let him be crucified. And the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. Verse 24, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, his blood be on us. And on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. When he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And we'll, let's pause there for a second. Then we'll move. Then we'll move on to the soldiers. Contemplate the picture here. Pilate wants to be innocent, but verse 24, I think, is key. Kind of making the point of, of what Tim's saying. What I've been saying about you know, Pilate choosing his priorities. He's, he can't prevail. He can't change their mind. Now, wait a minute. He's the governor. He could do anything he wants. What does can't prevail there mean? What, did the Jews hold more power than the governor? Absolutely not. In the context of persuasion, he's powerless. They want him dead. Now, that doesn't mean Pilate couldn't have done differently from the human perspective. What it means is that he's recognizing his job as a representative of Rome. His job is to keep the tumult down, keep these people manageable. And if I have, you know, if I have a riot going on in Jerusalem, Pilate might, might have thought, I'm failing to do my job. I gotta do what I gotta do to keep the tumult down. Because that, I mean, that's, that's the, seems to be the final, the final straw he sees that he could not prevail, but instead of him doing what he wants to do, there's a tumult rising. And there's, there's a number of pictures of riots that the Jews erupt into in the, uh, in the New Testament surrounding Jesus for one reason or another, particularly in the book of Acts. Pilate's job is to not have that happen. 
okay, uh, that, that makes my choice for me. Yeah, I, I got I to gotta keep, keep this mob manageable. And that's, that's, my, that's my priority. And if it means Jesus has got to die, I'll, I'll wash my hands. I'll try to be, you know, innocent of it. But, you know, if he's got to die, he's got to die for me to do my job. Go ahead, Ty. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the Romans, the, the, the Romans' general view of conquering nations was, we'll conquer them, and then we'll manage them well enough that eventually... May take a couple of generations, but they'll see how great and wonderful the Roman Republic is, and they'll all just want to be ruled by us. And you know, that history proves that that's generally not a good way of approaching things. And, in, and the Jews, particularly, proved intractable to that. They never could bear the idea of, of giving up their autonomy. But when it accomplishes their end, what are, not in this passage, what do they cry out in, in regards to their relationship? In this very passage, it's not recorded here, but anybody know what, what the phrase is in John that just really indicts the Jews? We have what? No king but Caesar. Oh, man. They said in that phrase, I think the Jews said a lot more than they realized that they were saying. We have no king but Caesar. Those are awful words. Whether you, whether you realize the full import of what you're saying or not. I have another example of that here as, as the account goes on. All the people answered when Jesus, I'm sorry, when Pilate washes his hands. And what do they say? His blood. I want to be guilty. I want this man dead so much. I want I'll take the guilt. I'll take the the blood on me. Another phrase that <laughs> I've been contemplating this week because all right, let, let's let's play a little word game here, but I th- I think it's worthwhile. I, I really think it it's it's a a way that we ought to think. Here's the murderous crowd saying his blood be on us and on our children. And raise your hand if you don't want Jesus's blood on you. Oh, when I say it that way, oh, wait a minute. There's two different things we can mean here. Think of the irony of what's going on here. The Jews are crying out for Jesus' blood to be upon them. We'll be guilty. We cry out for Jesus' blood to be upon us because we are guilty. And we understand the power of it to cover and forgive that guilt. Oh, such an such an ironic thing, and that's that's by the way that's a really uh, interesting illustration of what I what I meant a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about um, um, logos, ethos, pathos. You know, we're pretty good at logos. You know, the Bible's true; it says things, and, and they are true. Ethos: the Bible says what's right and wrong. We're, we we handle that pretty well. Sometimes. I think we miss the pathos. It's not an accident. The way the words are chosen, the way they're put together, it is supposed to provoke a response. 
And I'm, I'm reading this week, and I think the Jews are crying out, his blood be on us. And they're crying it out as a raging mob who wants him dead. And I'm sitting there re- reading, and I'm thinking, oh, dear Lord, in your mercy, let your blood be on me. I think, how ironic in, in the best sense of the term. Um, and and you know, we're, we're encouraged, to, I think, to, to, to see that kind of pathos in the recording of these, of these events. Um, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's sort of, we've, you and I have talked about this a little, little bit before. Every story has a protagonist. Biblical, Peter Rabbit, Johnny Tremaine, I don't care what you're reading. Every story has a protagonist. And we tend to identify with the protagonist. That's just, that's just the way stories work. Uh, this, it, biblical stories or not. We read a story, we think, ah, yeah, I'm, I'm this guy. We tend to identify with the protagonist. It's really healthy a lot of times to ask ourselves as we read biblical stories because our tendency is to identify with Jesus, the protagonist, or Peter when he's the protagonist, or Stephen when, yeah, I want to be like Stephen. I want to be brave enough to get stoned to death. But it's really healthy, I think, to ask ourselves, okay, in reality, who are we really more like? Are we more like Jesus or are we more like Pilate? Now, by God's grace, I'm not Pilate. Thank you, Lord. But on a scale, who am I more like? I'm bear-hugging Pilate to steal a, an illustration from R.C. Sproul. He used Hitler. But um, yeah, who am I supposed to be identifying with in this story well, Jesus in the sense that I am his and he is my king, but not in the sense that I am like him. I'm a lot more like Pilate. And that's, that's what I'm to be identifying and contemplating. Um, go ahead. I think it would have been not common, but it, w- but it would have been an, an ordinary extreme expression. Um, like, y- you want to, y- I'm, I'm being bold enough and assertive enough in what I want that I'm saying, I'll take, I'll take any of the consequences. Yeah, I'll, I'll be, you know, what I'm doing is the right thing, even if it involves some other guilt or curse. I'll, it, I, I think. It hark- we could actually tie it back to the language of, of, uh, of the sacrifices that existed in Old Testament treaties where there would be you know, a sacrifice, animal sacrifice, and you'd pass between the pieces of the animals and you were saying, if I violate this covenant, this treaty, may I be like these slaughtered animals. Now, I don't think they were probably that conscious of it, but culturally it would have been that kind of history. So, yeah, it would have been a... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
It would have been extreme. I don't think it's something people just went around saying every day. Um, but this was, you know, passions were high. And they were willing to uh, take the worst of consequences. Okay, so we'll go on next week. Uh, we see what the Jews want and, and their passion in wanting that. The soldiers mock him. The thieves, that's a, that's a very interesting case. We'll, we'll talk about that. Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene, I was reading today, is a, a region, uh, a city uh, in, what, near, in or near what is now Libya. Um, we'll talk about uh, Joseph and Nicodemus. We'll talk about the, some of the, the, the details of the crucifixion. Um, but thank you for your attention. We'll move on through this next week. Thank you.